Good. It's good to see everybody today. All right. Nice full Sunday school room. Good deal. I hope we get so full that we don't fit in here anymore. We have to use the main sanctuary. Wouldn't that be nice? By the way, I want to remind you in July, uh, we have a special Sunday, uh, um, I guess, uh, Sunday teaching coming, Sun- Sunday seminary teaching coming. Remember, we have a brother coming to teach us on Islam. And uh, matter of fact, just fresh in my mind because I recently met up with him um, and uh, we discussed that. But that is, uh, that's going to be a time you will not want to miss. And uh, he's going to be with us here. Uh, our brother Rami is going to be here and he's going to be fellowshipping with us. And he is certainly the kind of guy that you really, if you have any questions about Islam, he is the brother that you want to, that you want to ask. He is extremely prolific and the Lord is really, he's a very, very unique guy because, um, not only is he Arab, not only does he, is he fluent in Arabic, but he's also fluent in Quranic Arabic, which is very rare even among Muslims. Um, and then on top of that, uh, he's reformed. <laughs> and, uh, and on top of that, you know, he just, he, he, he kind of shares our spirit, you know? Um, anyway, there's so, so much, but, uh, so much stuff that he wants to do too in the Muslim world that, you know, we, we, we want to see what's going to happen there as far as, uh, how we can help him. But, uh, alright, so we are back in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter four. If you want to turn there, we are going to resume talking about practical theology. Very good. You mind if I pray one more time? Let's let's pray together. <clears throat> let's pray. Father, Lord, we come to you now and again we thank you for your grace. Thank you, Father. We we pray specifically, Lord, that you would lead us in such a way that all the theology that we learn in our church that it would not just simply remain uh, abstract and head knowledge, that it would not just be for intellectual curiosity, but that it would actually affect us and that it would transfer over into how we run our homes and our, our marriages and our own piety, that it would have a profound effect upon us, practically speaking. So guide us now. Give us uh, your Holy Spirit in great abundance. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to come back to um, Ephesians 4 uh, and really focus in on verse 11 today. We didn't, if you remember last week, we, we really didn't get that far. So I want to, uh, just kind of hone in on that and talk about, um, really, the, I guess what we can talk about here is the doctrinal emphasis of the gifts that are talked about here. Because remember what this is saying to us here, beginning of verse seven, but to each one, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So Christ's gift, meaning the gift that that flows from Christ to the church um and then he he grounds that activity of God or that activity of Christ bestowing his gifts upon his church he grounds that and he he roots that in the redemptive activity of Jesus as he um you know as he uh, lives a perfect life and you know dies a perfect death and then is ascended to the right hand of the father so uh, you see that in his language here of ascension, uh, descension and ascension, basically Christ coming down, accomplishing redemption for us, and then ascending. Of course, when did Jesus ascend to the right hand of the Father? When did he ascend on high and lead a captive of hosts captive? Well, um, 
or lead captivity captive is when he resurrected, right? And after he accomplished his redemption on the cross, that's when exaltation takes place. And uh, it's all one work, you know. I really want you guys to understand that. Uh, I think a lot of times we kind of splice up the work of Christ, not realizing that death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and now maybe a new layer, outpouring is all part of one work of Christ. And uh, very specific, because this is all that Christ came to accomplish among his people. So very, So that is where all of this is rooted and grounded, and then... He, his purpose is kind of twofold here. Number one, verse seven, you can see the distributive power of this. Each one, right, has been given grace, and that grace consists of the gifts that God has given to his people. So this, this is, remember, smack dab in the middle of this, of this section here, verses one to sixteen, which is all about the unity of the local church. And what he's saying is that every one of us has a gift. What is it? And then how does that contribute to the overall unity of the local church? So somehow the diversity of the gifts, because he says each one, right, each individual person has some sort of gift and talent, some sort of grace given to them by Christ as a result of his redemptive work, right, that should contribute to the overall picture of unity in the church. Isn't that amazing? Because we're all so different. That's what it's saying. We're all different. We're all gifted differently. But guess what? Everything boils down to the unity that should result from that diversity. So should be wonderful. It should not be that our gifts cause us to divide from each other, right? It should be that our gifts unite us somehow. And that is only done through the bond. What, what, how, what does he call that? The bond, the, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I mean, that can only happen as a result of true redemption in our midst. And so now he focuses in specifically, because this is not like, let's say, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, where he lists all these different gifts that are, you know, the charismata, the spiritual gifts that the Spirit gives to his people. He, he focuses in, if, 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 you're, if you're following closely, he focuses in on very foundational, seminal, and even what we can call doctrinal type of gifts, right? Because look at what he says. He gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now, here's a question for you. What did he just give us in this verse? Did he give us a list of offices in the church? Yes? No? You guys are married. You guys have got to be careful. <laughs> he says yes, she says no. <laughs> I, feel, I, <laughs> I know what you both are saying, right? Because I agree with both of you. So how would you articulate that? Um, Landon. <clears throat> By the way, Landon has uh, saw fit to bring an extra pulpit uh, in here, a lap pulpit, his own. Pri- I told I told him he's going to start a trend in our church. Everybody, all of you guys. I just told him when I'm preaching, don't pound your pulpit. Okay. I love it. I mean, look at that. That's right. And your drink. Don't be spilling your drink, though, man. You need a cup holder in that thing. And then it's got a power button. I go, what do you do? You fly with that thing or something? What is it? It's got a USB port. It's got a, forget it. I can't. Technology. So how would you, how would you specify or articulate that, uh, Landon? Why do you think, why do you think Cecilia said no? Well, she's just refer, I think she's referring to, um, to the fact that in the New Testament era that, uh, many were, many, many were given distinct 
gifts uh, for the use of the whole body on an individual basis, but I think that here he's talking about um, gifts of office because, in a sense, um, there's like an, there's a, there is a sense which everyone was a little a apostle, one who is kind of sent, but he says here some as apostles, mm -hmm. and so that would be referring to a distinct, uh, a, a certain, a, a special, uh, in a special sense, he's. He's sure. To a group of people. So he's so he's definitely talking about offices. Right. Is there any sense in which he's not talking about an, a technical office of the church? Anybody? I'll struggle with the evangelist one. Okay. I mean, that's not. I mean, Trish is our local evangelist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Correct. Yeah, that's right. So that's what I'm saying. It's like you know, I made a, I made it you know very specific that what what he's doing here is in one sense he's giving us. You know, he's giving us a compilation. He's not trying to list offices for us, right? He gives us a list, and I think that what is the common denominator here is that all of these gifts that he... Because every office is a gift, right? But not every gift is an office, right? So because, notice, he also uses uh, didaskala, which is teacher. So pastor and teacher... Now, there's some grammatical controversy because these two are separated by one chi and one article, which means this is the TSKS rule in grammar. That means that sometimes when that happens, that that is unifying these two things. These two things speak of the same thing. So a lot of people will interpret this as saying that this is, um, that this is uh, pastors who are teachers and that that's the way that they would explain the grammar. However... Um, looking further into that, I, I, I don't agree with that position. I agree with Daniel Wallace, who has proven grammatically through the, the Greek New Testament that not every time that grammatical construction is found are those two things equal with one another. And I can bore you with all the, all the details, but essentially what I think it's saying is that, yes, uh, of course, pastors teach, but there are those that teach that are not pastors, you see what I'm saying? And in every, I would say, in every church, you have people that are gifted to teach, but are not necessarily pastors of the church. I mean, we have them in our church. You know what I mean? Whether they're deacons or not. You know, uh, 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 Landon, perfect example. He's not a pastor or a deacon, but he is prolifically gifted to teach. That is a gift that God has given him. Now, perhaps, you know, and I think Landon is heading towards probably the pastoral office, but it's not a necessity that he become a pastor simply because he has the gift to teach. So I see this as, as scripture saying, no, there, there are different gifts in the body. And you're right, uh, Gail, that evangelist is not a, a office in the church. And some would debate that. And the, I would say, why would you say it's not an office in the church? What would be your argument? You wouldn't see an evangelist within a church exercising authority over the congregant. Mm. That's good. That's a, that's a, that's actually a good argument. Anybody would have helped that argument, Brian? Oh, well, I was going to say as far as the, the, the two offices of the church, it would have to do with an overall time frame, too, from you know, the beginning of ecclesiastical bodies. You think that there were apostles, there were prophets, um, and those offices aren't specifically relevant now. Oh, so you're saying that this is, that he's thinking more in the early church, that transitionary period of time, right, when... At that point, there were apostles and prophets. Right. And some apostles in the more foremost sense, right, like Paul and, and, and uh, the 
correct. Correct. Okay. Yes. That's right. Yeah, Marlene, I think you had a question. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so evangelism is done by multiple people, right? That doesn't mean that you have an office just because you are engaged in the gift of evangelism. You see what I'm saying? Chris? Now, yeah. So, so are, you, are we saying that he gave, because it seems that you would say some as teachers. That's right. Not all as teachers. Correct. And some as evangelists. Correct. So, not everyone evangelists. So, he is Correct. a distinction between people. Like, it seems like it could be a distinction, like in Romans 10, how can they uh, preach, if, uh, how can they go, right, if they're not sent. Right. And, and in a sense, like your evangelist would be. Uh, in an official sense, maybe just like there are, are some teachers who yeah. are not pastors and don't have offices, right? Maybe some preachers, yeah, who are only who, who can preach with with, with to to a, a to a degree that others cannot. Yeah, so I think what you see even to make it even more complicated is that a lot of times you even see an overlap, right, of these gifts and, and offices, right? I can think of one specific example in the deacon Philip in the early church in the Book of Acts, right? He was a deacon. He was singled out and he was officially recognized by the church, but he was also called what? An evangelist. So he was an evangelist and remember he, he evangelized the Ethiopian eunuch, right? And all of this. And so you can have an overlap. Second uh, Timothy chapter four, verse five. What does Paul tell the, what is Paul telling young pastor Timothy? He's telling him, preach the word in season and out, right? But he also tells him in verse five, do the work of an evangelist, right? Now, practically speaking, I mean, we have to acknowledge the practicality of it. I'm getting ready to go to a pastor's conference. And a lot of these pastors don't evangelize. They just don't like doing it. And I've been around enough pastors to know that a lot of them struggle to evangelize. They don't like hitting the streets. They don't like passing out tracts. They wouldn't be caught dead open-air preaching or something like that, right? And I would say they evangelize to a minimum. They would say their preaching is a form of evangelism, and certainly it is. I think what Paul's calling for in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5 is a little bit more than that. But, you know, even there, so I see that a pastor can be called into the office of an elder, but not necessarily be gifted to be an evangelist. Is that possible? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think, Chris? You just came out of the pastoral ministry. Yeah, I mean, so it seems like you've got to just make a distinction between these categories of, like, when you say office. Mm-hmm. Like I say, obviously, he's saying there are some who are evangelists. They just keep in the office of an evangelist. It's not an office like elder deacon. Right. Right, so there's distinctions between these categories. Right. So you just got to recognize, you know, like, he doesn't mention deacons, so you know. Correct. That's why we know he's not giving us an exhaustive list of offices, of the offices of the church, because he failed to mention the diaconate, right, which is an office. And uh, maybe I can just finish something. Can I finish a thought? Is, you know, that I asked Gail, why doesn't she take evangelists as an office? I agree with her. I don't think evangelists 
should be a technical office of the church. I say for a number of reasons. Number one, there are no qualifications like you find in First Timothy 3 with pastors and deacons. Also in places like uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, the Apostle Paul is is directly addressing the officers of the church to the pastors and the deacons. But he didn't say to the pastors, to the deacons and the evangelists. Mm-hmm. So it just seems as if this text right here is warrant for us to view that the gifts that build up the church doctrinally and 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 really um, uh, through the ministry of the word are consist of offices but are not limited to the offices of the church. Juan, do you have something? That was what I was going to say. Just that deacon and bishop, there's specific requirements you can find that I can point someone to. Right. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah, I mean, we just saw this with Lynn, right? I mean, we're walking through the qualifications. So if like we wanted to appoint an evangelist to our church, I wouldn't know where to go to appoint him, right? Because there's no qualifications. So it must be that this is not to be held as a authoritative office in the church. So any, any questions on this? I know this is kind of sticky for some people. Okay. We're still to be doing that. And so it would be hard for every single person in the church to hold the office of the evangelist if we're all called to be proclaiming the gospel. Yeah, the way that I wrote that was I regard the evangelist as one who is uniquely gifted, called, and burdened for evangelism. I do believe that. You know what I mean? And, and sent. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're member in good standing in the local church, you should have the blessing of the church, you know, for you to preach, you know, and so I think, and, and you see that in the scriptures, you know, uh, what is it, third, third, is it third John or second John, you guys may have to double check this, but you kind of see that third John, if you go to third John, um, you kind of see this dynamic, I think. Um, where maybe we are dealing here with some evangelists that are maybe even, uh, you know, technically cooperating with the churches. You see this? Third John verse five. Beloved, you're acting faithful in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers and they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, for they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. So it looks like these brothers, whoever they were, they were blowing through the churches of Asia. And now John, the apostle, is directing the churches when these evangelists, these brothers who went out, we say evangelists because it says they went out for the sake of the name. So what does that mean, right? So the commentators would say that what that means is that they're propagating, right? The do- they're propagating the truth of who God is. They're basically preaching the gospel. Going out for the sake of the name is that they are going out in the name of, of the Lord in order to establish the gospel. And so this definitely is some sort of evangelistic ministry, but they're not called pastors, right? They don't seem to be holding an office, but the church can cooperate that with them. 
Uh, we have brothers in the faith. I know a couple brothers who are full-time evangelists. Um, they spend very little time at home. They spend the majority of their time traveling from place to place, city to city, function to function, like let's say the Super Bowl or something, and they spend the majority of their time preaching, tracks, evangelism. I know one brother, he had a very successful business um, and was very well off, and he basically sold his business, sold his home, got rid of pretty much all his possessions, and became a full-time evangelist. And and that's what I mean by uniquely burdened, uniquely gifted, because I don't have that burden. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I would say I'm, I would consider myself an evangelistic pastor, but this guy wants to devote his, you know, every day to, to evangelism. And he's not a pastor, and he's come through our church, and we have helped him at times. So I think we would kind of fall into that category. Uh, anything else on that portion of it? I do want to focus in on something else, but anything else on that? Uh, as far as the the roles, the functions, the offices that are mentioned there, um, I do take. Let me just let me just kind of tell you as far as verse eleven again. I do uh, consider when he says apostles and prophets. I do again. I do think he is talking there about new covenant uh, prophets, not the Old Testament prophets, right? I think that's what he's talking about because remember these are gifts that Christ gave post ascension. So he must be talking about the prophets like Agabus in the early church and the daughters of Philip and people like that who had the supernatural, I would say, revelatory power to prophesy. You see what I'm saying? Um, and I would say that those offices, apostle and new covenant prophet, have ceased. I don't think they're, I don't think they're operative today. And I mean, we can get... They, believe, they, they received divine revelation from God. They were not just forth telling the word, they were foretelling the word. It's a new knowledge. Yes. Yeah. And that's what you believe this one is referring to? I think so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. How are we to understand that today? Well, that's what I'm saying is I believe those two have ceased. Oh, okay. So I would say apostle and prophet together passed away with the time period of the early church. And that's a huge, I mean, that opens up a huge can of worms. You know, the whole continuation cessationist debate. I've always considered myself, I've, I've been a continuationist for a long time, believing that all the gifts continue today. I've slowly kind of moved over to a open but cautious view, you know, because I just saw so many crazy stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then slowly, I think I've moved even further over to a more cessationist position which now I'm comfortable calling myself. I know you got to call yourself something, right? I'm comfortable calling myself a partial cessationist. I do not believe as some very strict cessationists, like sometimes coming out of like Master Seminary, MacArthur and those guys. I know Dr. Thomas from the Master Seminary. He wrote a book in which he believes every single gift has ceased, like everything, the gift of mercy, the gift of help, the gift of administration, everything has ceased. And I would say, no, I don't think that's right. You know what I mean? I think we have gifts that do continue today, but I just don't think the revelatory gifts, um, which that would include revelation to me, that would include the ability to perform miracles, supernaturally grow back a limb or raise the dead. I would say that my reading of scriptures well, and theology. I've heard it said too that, and I could not show you where, but um, <laughs> there's certain, um, when the word prophet is used, that it's also just... It could also be translated to mean someone who's 
declaring the word? Yeah. That yeah. Good? Yeah. Because, yeah, because, and, and there you're dealing specifically with the charismatic gifts in Corinth, right? Where he says that, you know, that somebody that prophesies, right, speaks comfort and encouragement to men. So it, that seems as if that's a lesser level prophecy. So you will hear me say at times that I'm preaching the word of God and that there is a prophetic element in the preaching of God's word. And I do think that's, that's just a spiritual dynamic, right? That, so it's like a two tier prophecy. Although I'm not going to get up and say, thus saith the Lord, you know, uh, like some people will. Yeah. And yeah, chapter and verse, right? That's next. But I will, but I will preach with the full conviction that God is supernaturally applying his word to the people of God, I would say in a supernatural way. I mean, I can't deny it. I mean, sometimes people come up to me and I'm preaching something. I've had people come up to me and tell me, you, you know what's going on right now? You know, like as if I have this insight. <laughs> like, yeah, like I've been reading their mail or something. You know what I mean? It's like, no, that's just the prophetic word of God doing its work in your heart. <laughs> you know? And I can't have no control over that. You know what I mean? It's just God's spirit putting his hand or putting his thumb on something. So, I mean, to me, this begs the the bigger question, you know, that as the Apostle Paul is talking about um, these gifts, really the purpose for it, look at verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, right? And so that's why I'm saying there is a doctrinal emphasis on these gifts, course we could say the evangelist maybe is kind of the entry point right of sharing the gospel and preaching the gospel but definitely the apostles the prophets and then the pastors and teachers of the church are definitely going to be the ones who are you know seminally laying down the doctrine of the church and so what i wanted to talk to you guys about was just that thing i wanted to talk to you because because remember we just went deep, right? But this is practical theology. <laughs> and I wanted to talk a little bit about the effects of the doctrine in the church. And so just different different aspects of that. In Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas, it says, were teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. And that really is how the church is to be built you know, uh, this is very comforting to me that we're, we're in a church where we don't have 101 programs, right? And we may not have all the bells and whistles that the church down the street does or whatever, but I'm very confident that, you know, as Paul and Barnabas were not trying to, you know, erect the youth group in the back with the rock climbing wall, you know, that that they were they just had the bible you know what I mean? and they're just preaching and teaching the word of god all day long that's what they're doing i am i am confident that that is how the church is going to grow and the the saints are going to be equipped because what is the end game and you guys if you've gone through membership you've heard me say this a bunch of times if you look down at verse 16 what we say is like what is the net result of all of this this is what we're striving for right we're striving for this right here from whom, it says, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, it, watch this, this is crucial, it causes the growth of the body. Does that say the pastors and teachers cause the growth? No, that's uh, every joint, every member, every part, right, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So what, what this is the way that I phrased it. That what is a church? The church should be 
a self-replenishing organism that is building itself up in love. Right, Jeff? I just covered that with you guys, right, during church membership. That it is a self-replenishing organism. That's what we're to be. Now, what is the foundation of that? What is the energy? What is the power that drives that self-edification? It's the Word of God. It is the Word of God. And so, let me just... Let me just kind of hand down some aspects of this. Number one, the scope of the teaching. What are we to teach? Look at Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 18. I guess we can start there. You know, these are real practical verses that probably all of y'all know. Acts chapter 20, verse 18. uh, It says, And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia... How I was with you the whole time. So this is the Apostle Paul talking to the Ephesian elders about the way, you know, these are elders that he appointed in the churches, right? And now he's going back through here and he's giving them sort of a parting word. And this is what he's saying. You know that I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and tears with trials which came upon me. Watch this through the plots of the Jews. So this is a persecuted missionary theologian. Right? This is a persecuted missionary theologian, Paul. Right? And what did he do? I did not shrink back from declaring to you, or I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there the Apostle Paul is just saying, look, I did not shrink from declaring anything that was profitable to you. Some people, some translations would say, I didn't, I declared the whole counsel of God to you, right? He, he covered the entire panoply of the faith. How will we understand that? And how do we know that we would be accomplishing that? That we are teaching, that we're not shrinking back from teaching, I, I guess what we can say is the whole counsel of God. How are we to achieve that? Right? Anyone? Well, specifically, as far as what are we declaring in order to qualify for, you know, the type of pastoral ministry or the type of ministry Paul is talking about here that does not shrink away from declaring the whole counsel of God or anything that is profitable. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, so I would say, you know, different ways that we can declare, you know, the whole counsel, you know, of God, right, is how is, let's say, exposition. What is exposition? Right? What does exposition mean? Anyone? Jonathan? Correct. Correct. That really is that simple. <laughs> right? Exp- exposition is explaining the, the, the meaning of the text. What is exposition based on? Another X. Yeah, what does exegesis mean? What does that word mean? That's right. To take out, right? It comes from the, the Greek preposition ek, right? It means to draw out. 
right? To draw out what? To draw out the original meaning of the text. What did it mean at that time to that author, to those people in that context? See what I'm saying? And this is the safest way that you are going to actually declare the whole counsel of God. That's why, you know, like today what qualifies for exposition a lot of times, if you just type in like expository preaching or whatever, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes it's not expositional preaching. (laughs) You know what I mean? Sometimes that can be a very broad category, you know what I mean, of what qualifies nowadays for expositional preaching. So one thing I've developed is the concept of exegetical preaching. Ah, you can't get away with that, right? Uh, You cannot get away saying that you're involved in exegetical preaching if you are not handling the grammar of the text, the syntax of the text. The words of the text, the vocabulary, the etymology. If you're not diving into those things, you're not doing exegesis. It doesn't qualify. You see what I'm saying? So we have to be very careful here that because there's different principles of preaching and, and, and a lot of people do it very well how they do it. Um, but there's limitations to exposition. Some people would say, well, Exposition is when you teach the main idea of the text. So you take the main idea and then you teach based on that. Okay, I, I don't, I, I could be blessed and receive. There's a lot of truth that goes into that. But part of what I've been, maybe I'm just too old school or whatever, but part of what I've been convicted to do in the text is that you have to prove your exposition. You have to establish your exposition, right? You can't just you know, set forth this proposition, this idea, and then preach based on that. I say, no, no, you got to show me why you believe it means that. you got to show me what does this word mean? What is this phrase? Why is Paul talking about that? What does this mean? You know, what did this mean in context? So I think exposition is one way that we will preach the whole counsel of God. Turn with me to Jude, chapter, chapter. Don't you wish there were... Don't you wish there was like chapters of Jude? Jude verse 3. You know this verse. Jude 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, he says, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing to you, um, that you contend earnestly for the faith. Watch this which was once for all handed down to the saints. Hmm. What does he mean by the faith? Once for all handed down to the saints. Is he referring to the gospel? Yeah, that's right. Um, the reason why I think it's it's a bit bit more exhaustive is that he sense he says here it's once for all delivered to the saints, right? That's interesting because if you think about the implications of that, is he talking to just New Testament people? When was the faith delivered to the saints? 
just in the New Testament time? Right? Well, what happened to the Old Testament people? <laughs> Did they not have the faith? Did they not have a common salvation? Right? So I think what he's talking about is, yes, the presentation of the of Christianity, right? That body of doctrine that binds the whole people of God together, redemptively speaking, doctrinally speaking. So I think he's talking about the entirety of our faith. Um, any any observations or questions on that? I'm going somewhere with this. Uh huh. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, but for all the saints, right. you know what I mean. He says, as to this salvation, the salvation of the New Testament saints, the prophets, um, the prophets who prophesied of the grace yeah. uh, that would come to you, uh, they made you know, careful search and inquiry as to the person and the suffering. So I think it's talking about Christian doctrine generally. Right. So how do we cover Christian doctrine generally? Okay, redemptive historical hermeneutics, which is what? Can you explain that to us? Yeah. Is there any other way to harmonize the faith, to present like the totality of what we believe? Any other discipline that does that? Yeah. Systematics, right? So systematics is what's going to inform the totality of our faith. Uh, this is where we're going to get into essential Christian doctrine. So now we're speaking about the scope of what is to be taught. If we're going to teach the whole counsel of God, we have to systematize. So many Christians, don't you agree, so many people are quite content holding completely con- contradictory positions. <laughs> right? Uh, some people's theology, they want to be Calvinist in the New Testament and they want to be Arminian in the Old. <laughs> right? Totally contradictory positions. Right? No harmony in their theology. So I'm just saying I'm building a case for the scripture calls us to synthesize our theology, to systematically go through and discern what are the pillar theological teachings of the Bible and to bring those into harmonious unity. You see what I'm saying? To harmonize these teachings with one another. I think you see uh, Peter struggling to do that in Second Peter chapter 3, I think it's verse 16, where he says, you know, some of the things that Paul writes are difficult to understand, which the untrained and the untaught twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures. You see that? So so for I think for Peter, it's like, it's difficult to take what Paul is teaching and to see how does this all fit and how does this all make sense in light of all of Scripture. See what I'm saying? So I think there's a there's a a place for us to try to assess the whole faith, to try to distill and 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 so how have people done this in the past? Well, we can say well people have written systematic theologies. Right. Just last last week, somebody just handed me the new systematic theology from John MacArthur. Right. The master seminary's new systematic textbook. Right. And so people have done systematic theologies. Any other things that people have done through church history?
to try to systematize the faith. To try to debate. So maybe polemics. Councils. That's right. And what came out of councils? What was that? Creeds. That's right, Nancy. Creeds came out of councils. Like the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, right? The Athanasian Creed. These statements of faith where the church is trying to give a proper assessment of the whole counsel of God. You see what I'm saying? Whether on a certain topic or, you know, I think it was origin. So not good because origin had some heretical issues going on in his theology. But origin, I think is the first theologian in the early church who tried to systematize the faith in like a, what we would know today as like a systematic theology. And it really did not take full systematic shape until what uh, volumes of the bi- of of, of uh, theology do you know <laughs> when was it really for the first time truly systematized i would say yeah during the reformation with who that's right what did he write yeah so let's just say uh you know for example right calvin's institutes right institutes of the christian religion Right, which Calvin began writing, I think, in his teenage years. And this is how prolific John Calvin was, is that he wrote the Institutes, and I think he was done by the time of his 20s, right? 27. 27, he was done with the Institutes. And those Institutes, guess what? Those Institutes, like it or not, <laughs> like it or not, those Institutes really became the plumb line for all theology after that. Because when you go down the timetable, Okay, of history and what came after Calvin, you have a couple of traditions, right? Let's say you have on this side, you have the Catholic tradition, right? Roman Catholics. Well, then you're going to get people like Thomas Aquinas, you know, they call him Thomas, you know. But on the Reformed tradition, what you're going to get from the Institutes after this, then you're going to get somebody like, um, actually, Watson. Thomas Watson wrote the um, the body of divinity, right? And that was like a condensed systematic theology that came after that. Now, after this was written, then you have somebody like um, um, <laughs> Turretin. I butchered his name. After Turretin, I'm giving you the high the high points. Right? I'm giving you the big guys, right? You have Watson, Body Divinity. Turretin, he wrote three volumes called Alentic Theology. And then after Turretin, you have somebody like Bavink. You have four volumes by Herman Bavink. After Herman Bavink, I would say maybe the most seminal systematic theology after Herman Bavink and then Bavink around this time, you're also talking about Hodge, A.A. Hodge, Charles Hodge. You're talking about B.B. Warfield, ring any bells, right? All these men. This is around this time period. Then after this, then you have somebody like Burkhoff, right? Now, if you look at, if you look at Wayne Grudem, which, let's bring it to our generation, right? Which would be Grudem. No question about it, you guys. Like it or not, Wayne Grudem, Wayne Grudem on an evangelical level, which means that's what affects our churches and, and everything else, right? Wayne Grudem was the most seminal theologian of the 20th century in the sense that his system... Listen, John MacArthur is a cessationist, <laughs> right? What's Wayne Grudem? Big time. 
But the Master Seminary had enough sense to know Wayne Grudem was their systematic theology text for their seminary. Guess why? Because Wayne Grudem did such a stellar job of putting the faith together. Well, guess who he was following? Burkhoff. Guess who Burkhoff was following? Bavink. Guess who Bavink was following? Turretin. <laughs> guess who Turretin was following? Watson and ultimately Calvin. Any questions about that? Just kind of give you guys the history of systematic theology. I don't know why, but because, <laughs> but because the whole counsel of God, what I'm trying to tell you guys is that it's important for us as Christians to be able to summarize our faith, right? To know what is the faith that we are, you know, giving to the, you know, Burkhoff did a small little volume. I really encourage you to read it. It's called The Summary of Christian Doctrine. It's a small little book. You guys can read it. It's a tiny little systematic theology, and it's just a good summary from a Presbyterian point of view, right, of the faith of the whole council of God. Any questions or statements? Anything? I feel like we just went back to systematic theology. I love it. Yes, sir. Correct. Yeah, biblical theology, biblical theology as defined by like someone like Gerhardus Voss, right? Voss, who is known as the founder of biblical theology, the modern founder, I guess they call him, of biblical theology because he really systematized it. But real quick, Jonathan, how would you define biblical theology as opposed to systematic theology? Um, how would you define that? What does the scripture say from Genesis to Revelation? Mm. Very good. You're going to teach it next time. <laughs> it's a good definition. That's right. It's, it's, Yeah, I mean, let's close in prayer. You know what I mean? You you preach the whole message. You're right. So biblical theology is a subsection of exegetical theology. That's the way that biblical theologians would characterize that. You know what I mean? And it's very much like you pointed out. It's very historical. So it's you know biblical theology is very much concerned with the history of the Bible, how it develops from Genesis to Revelation. And you know, like you ever wonder, like I mean. I mean, this part of your Bible, you know, okay, let's be a little bit more honest. Okay, this whole part of your Bible right here, that's a lot. That's a lot of history. That is, I mean, that is, you know, millennia of history. Don't you ever wonder why did God give us so much history, right? And and and, and so I guess he wants us to understand that history how it develops, how it unfolds. And I think Jonathan mentions basically how it goes together. How does it organically connect to each other? You see what I'm saying? What does Genesis 3, 15, what does that have to do with Leviticus? (laughs) 
right? <laughs> right? And so, and then ultimately, how does that ultimately terminate in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Isn't Jesus amazing? The whole book is about him. Everything terminates on Jesus Christ. It's incredible. You know, um, one author said that if you were a Jew in the old covenant times and you follow the Levitical law, we'll close on this. From morning to night, from the minute you got up to the minute you went to bed, through types and shadows, God had surrounded your life with images of Jesus Christ. Everything that you did, every the way you ate, the way you dressed, the way you worshipped, where you went, everything you did as a Jewish person in the covenant was a shadow of Jesus Christ. Think about that. He surrounded the people with images and shadows and types that ultimately point to the person of Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul sees Jesus Christ and he says, voila, everything has to do with him. And some one theologian said that Paul wrapped all his theology around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Simply amazing, you know. Now you see why I can't stop teaching biblical theology. Anyway. I'm sorry. Um, okay. Just going back to that G1, can we just look at that phrase that once, that was once for all delivered? And as, as it relates to the whole counsel of God. I don't know, when I look at that phrase, there's a finality to it, there's a completeness to it. It's like, almost like a closed canon. Amen. Then how would you preach the whole counsel if it never ends? Correct. Amen, brother. That's right. It is not, it is not a council that keeps growing. You know, keeps, keeps growing, you know. So like, think of Catholicism, right? Like you can think of many ways that would violate that. But like Catholicism, you know, 1537, Council of Trent, they add 13 more books to the canon. What? <laughs> so it took us 1500 more years and then we're gonna add a bunch of books to the canon of scripture? It's preposterous. It's absolutely preposterous. You know. Yes, sir. only confined to what's written in scripture. That's right. So it can't be added by anything else as well. So what yeah. we have in the revelation of God is closed faith. Um, yeah. Amen. Amen. All theology is, you know, what is theology? I mean, just to wrap it up, what does the word theology mean? Yeah, and if you were to define what we're talking about in terms of theology, this is what we would say. Theology is the study of God as he has chosen to reveal himself in scripture. <laughs> that's it. We're limited to that. You know what I mean? We can't study the stars, you know, to get a better understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. You know, we, we're confined to the canon, right? I mean, I'm woefully late. Let's go. <laughs>